Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Welcome back to The Andy Rowe Show. Ash Dykes is a world record holding adventurer with some crazy stories about cheating death, discovering lost tribes and escaping bears, wolves and witches. Ash was the first person to hike the entire length of China's Yangtze River, the first to walk the entire length of Madagascar and then the first to hike across Mongolia. I hope you enjoy the episode. Once a month, I get a delivery through the letterbox store. Some freshly packaged coffee from patcoffee.com. It comes directly from the farmer, so by the time I put it in my stovetop coffee maker and froth some milk, I'm drinking the freshest, most delicious coffee I've ever made. And if you go to patcoffee.com, that's P-A-C-T, coffee.com, you'll get five quid off your first bag when you create a flexible coffee subscription. And make sure you enter the code Andy Rowe at the checkout. This is really important. You'll get a discount, and you'll also show your support for this podcast so I can keep creating more content. Go to packcoffee.com and create your coffee subscription. The code is valid when you create a packed coffee plan for new customers only. Ash Dykes, thanks very much for coming on the show, mate. No problem at all. Thanks for having me, Andy. Mate, no worries. You are as extreme as you pretty much get. As far as things that you've got in the pipeline, let's start there. What are you lining up? Because you've done, you know, you've got three world records in the bank. You've walked across Mongolia, across Madagascar, the Yangtze. We'll talk about all of those things because you've got some amazing yarns to, to, to share on that. But what's in the pipeline at the moment? Like what's getting you out of bed in the morning? Uh, yeah, man. So I guess probably the best part of eight months, I've been planning something big, possibly the biggest step of my adventuring career so far. You know, we have secured a global TV commission. You know, it's painful to keep it on the down low, but I Oof. should hopefully be able to announce more and talk more about it, you know, in the next month or two, fingers crossed. Can I try and guess what it is? Go ahead. <laughs> does it involve climbing up a mountain? It doesn't. Oh, does it involve a desert? Oh, I can give you that. Are you in Australia? Nope. Oh. <laughs> okay, so that's game over. I've lost. I'm out. I'm looking forward to it. So when, when's that getting announced and later on this year, is it? I reckon in the next month or two. Right. Fingers crossed. Yeah, we're going hard at it now. Things are starting to come into and fall into place. And yeah, we should be able to run with it fairly soon. Now you've got all these like TVs and stuff like backers and people that get behind you, like National Geographic did for the Yangtze. But obviously, it makes things a lot easier. But then what it was when you first decided to go across Mongolia by yourself. Yeah. Where do you even start? You were 23 at the time, I think. Was it 2013? Where do you yep. even start? Because it's a pretty crazy idea to come up with in the beginning. And then you've got to do all the planning. Yeah, yeah. So with Mongolia, that was, yeah, that was the first world first record, if you like. That was the biggest thing I had done at that point. But before Mongolia, for, what, three years or so, I had travelled around 
Asia and Australia with a friend doing sort of low budget, reckless, sometimes dangerous adventures just on the on the cheap, you know, purchasing cheap bicycles, cycling across countries, learning how to survive in the jungle with the boomies. He'll try to what? trek in the Himalayas with no permit. So all of this happened before Mongolia. So I'd already done a wealth of sort of different adventures and gained a lot of experience prior to actually attempting Mongolia, even though I was only 23 with Mongolia. There was a lot of dangerous shit that happened before that expedition. So what were you doing? Where did you go cycling? How it initially started, it was me and a friend. And we were just working in North Wales here, fishing chip shop, waiting on. I was then a lifeguard for a good couple of years, saving up the funds. You know, I don't come from a financial background, no military background. You know, it was just fresh out of high school, into college. And then I decided not to pursue the university path, but instead find work to top up the funds to eventually travel. And we did this, you know, we, we set off our travels. We went to China first and this was great, but, you know, we found ourselves very much on the beaten track. We were on the tourist route, you know, sharing the same stories, photos mm. and experiences. And we just wanted something, something new, something different. And we actually ventured to Southeast Asia. We went to Cambodia. We were sulking on the Mekong riverbank because we'd spent quite a lot of money, more than we anticipated. And I said to my friend, you know, we need to get off this typical route. It's great because we're meeting people from all over the world, but we're not really exploring the local culture. We're not trying the local foods. It's always the goal when you go traveling is to try and yeah. try and get that. But it is easier said than done. Even for someone like me that just goes traveling through Europe when I can, it's very easy to stay on the beaten track. But you're talking about not just not just like going down a back alley and getting a, a one of the, the locals' favorite burritos. You're talking about <laughs> mixing it up in the jungle and shit, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly that. You know, I suggested to my friend, you know, let's let's just get a cheap bicycle. We don't have much of a budget, so let's get the most ridiculous bicycle we can find and let's cycle the entire length of Cambodia and Vietnam. And we did, you know, the bikes cost us about £10, $10. We had no pump, no puncture repair kit, a non-waterproof tent. We had no map, no GPS, nothing. And we just literally tied the rucksacks that we had onto the back of the bu- uh, bicycle. And that was it for over two and a half weeks. We just cycled the entire length of Vietnam. We were chased by dogs, hit by mopeds, dodged by lorries. It was intense, but it, that was the catalyst. I think it was that Vietnam cycle, which allowed me to find my niche, find my passion. And from that point, I just, I didn't want to stop. I was only 19, but I had already this vision of like a, a world map at the end of my days and lines going all across the world and different adventures from hiking to climbing to cycling and you know i remember with that vietnam cycle really getting into me a lot of industries or a lot of pursuits that people have there's a role model or there's a target or there's someone that someone that inspires you or like a uh, and almost like a chosen field, there's someone that's setting the benchmark that you're like oh yeah that's that's the guy i need to speak to What's your shtick? Is it just like, I'm an adventurer, I'm going to do what I want to do? Or is there someone that you're like, oh, Nims die, like he's, the, he's the man, or, or, or Columbus? Is, he like, is there someone that you're trying to almost follow in the footsteps, in it, but in a different way? No, you see, with myself, it all started very organic. I didn't really know that the adventure industry or mm. the exploration career was even a thing, you know? I was just the sporty type played football, played rugby, very athletic, very competitive. 
And, you know, it was only when I went out traveling and started doing these adventures that I was kind of mixing in the love of travel with the sports that I did. And that led on to these expeditions. Mm. You know, I did Mongolia and, and Madagascar before I even knew about these people popping up now, like Nimsdai, for example. I never really looked to the exploration industry because it just yeah. happened on accident, really. You know, it was just there was no social media. I wasn't plugging. I wasn't promoting. I didn't even take many photos, unfortunately. I was just doing it for the pure love and pure passion. So there was no footprints that I was trying to follow. I was just doing it because I I loved it. And I love meeting people. I love exploring different cultures and traditions. Uh, and just really getting involved and not watching, you know, these cultures from a, from a TV, but getting out there and being mm -hmm. amongst it. Uh, and that just continued to grow bigger, you know, each time. Let's talk about Mission Possible because you, it's based on the your trip across Mongolia, what was your thought process leading into that particular challenge? Because that was the, that was your first uh, world record trekking across Mongol Mongolia. Like we, a lot of people look at expeditions and go, I want to climb Everest. I, I want to swim across the English channel. They're quite popular sort of things to, that are in the public eye, things to aspire to, or things to tick off. Mm. Mongolia, I'd never heard of it until I, started researching you how did it come in front of you i'm glad you said that mate i am so glad you said that because that's exactly it you know there's lots of people doing epic epic things but it, it always seems to be around the stuff that is known or the stuff that has been done many times like everest is an as an epic challenge that it is i just i could never do it now just because mm. you, you've seen the cues at the top i just feel it's not as challenging as the Mongolia, the Madagascar, the Mission Yangtze trips that I've done and trying to find a way to actually do it and having no help, you know, no one there to say I've done it. And what I would recommend is you take this route or I've actually put in this path already that you can take, you know, there was none of that. Proper exploration, eh? Yeah. And that really excited me. And I always kind of chose countries that I was so unfamiliar with and that not many people really spoke of. So Madagascar, it features in a lot of people's minds, but no one really knows what's in Madagascar. You know, the first thing that pops to mind is probably the cartoon, right? The animation. Mm, yeah, yeah. And again, with, with Mongolia, what, there's three to four million uh, locals living in, in Mongolia, mainly in the capital city of Ulaanbaatar. It's one of the most sparsely populated countries in the world. It's home to the Altai Mountains, the Gobi Desert. You've got the reindeer herders up north. You've got the, the camels down south. You've got the eagle hunters in the west. And this just blew my mind. I was living on the travel route for two years as a master scuba diving instructor, you know, teaching people how to dive, teaching travelers how to dive. And the main topic of conversation was, where have you been traveling and where are you going next? Yeah. And Mongolia just never popped up. I was there for two years and there was not one traveler that said, yeah, I've just come from Mongolia. It was always like from Vietnam or from China or from here mm. or from there. And that, well, I'm heading to Australia, then New Zealand, then Fiji, then onto America, the typical sort of world tour route and for that mongolia was just it was it was just one of those that i was like what's there you know it's the heart of asia it's a massive place it's desolate it's harsh it's extreme and i just from the moment i started to think of mongolia i just started to get excited i had no idea whether it was a world first i wasn't interested in the world first as far as i concerned it's all been done you know so i was just doing it for pure love and, and curiosity of trekking through mongolia it was only then when I started planning deeply and started bringing teams involved that uh, 
we discovered that it'd be a recorded world first if I was to complete it, which raised the stakes and then got me thinking that maybe if I complete this, maybe there's room where I can pursue this as a career. I was only 23. I was just a scuba diver, you know? Yeah. I'd never been to a desert before and I had these sort of ideas and I was like, you know, I can, I can make, uh, you know, I can make this happen maybe with no budget. And I returned back to Wales with 200 pounds to my name telling the world that I was going to do Mongolia, you know, I had 200 pounds to my, I couldn't even afford a flight. Your parents must be like, what are you doing? Like, go and get a job, you lose it. You can't be going off just trekking across the world. You're 23 years old, this is back in 2013, you're 23 years old, it's time to, time to choose a profession and stick to it. You can't just be going off on these wacky adventures. You would think so, right? You would think so, but as worried as they were with me doing these adventures, they could see a pattern and they could see with each adventure, I started to, to take it more serious, you know, with the preparation and the research, they start to become a little less reckless, if you like, more attention to detail. And they just loved that I was happy. I think for them, they would prefer me doing something reckless, but seeing how happy I am, how much I love my life by doing it, rather than seeing me in a typical nine to five job, mm. but watching my spirit, fade away and so i do appreciate them for that you know they've always been there supportive and encouraging and my dad now is is part of the business you know he's a representative he works very closely with me he's just like a big brother fully enthusiastic really excited about the career path which is great you know which is is, is amazing because you're right it could have taken yeah. flip side and if they were a lot sort of more rigid they would be like take the university path and find yourself a job i would have never have listened to them anyway of course but it's nice to them uh, it's nice to have them on my side. You talk about the planning that, that goes into it as well and like getting, like almost becoming more professional at what you do. Well, not almost, actually becoming more professional at what you do. Mm. The planning that goes into going across Mongolia, like what does that involve? Like what sort of things are you planning for? Because you're doing it by yourself. Do you not just chuck everything in the back of your trailer, tow it across Mongolia and find your way on GPS? Yeah, no. So we're, this, this was a very difficult expedition to plan. It had only ever been attempted once before we recorded. It was a, an English guy who had attempted it three times, a, a soldier, British explorer, crossed the Sahara, but he was evacuated just after all, just before the halfway point. Uh, and he was down as the first recorded person to attempt a solo and unsupported walk across Mongolia. So it was my team in Mongolia that found, found out about this guy because uh, they were trying to do extensive research. And then I, I joined up with the Royal Geographic Society in which they were researching it as well. It took us a long time to make sure that it was a world first. It initially started by me trying to find those people who have done it so that I can ask them for tips, you know, and ask them what the dangers are. And so I had logistics uh, managers and fixers in the UK and on the ground in Mongolia. And there was this very experienced hiker who pretty much said it's impossible to cross the Gobi Desert with just a rucksack. The points are too far in between water sources and you need to carry at least 20 litres of water. So already that's 20 kilograms in a backpack of just water. So that's when we realised we needed a trailer. We then needed to figure out the confirmed and the unconfirmed water sources along the way in terms of wells, in terms of communities, what the distance would be like. We then had to get Russian-style military maps because the GPS would, it's not so accurate. I did take GPS, but it failed me after week two. 
So I went straight back to the maps and, and didn't pull the GPS out again. And so it food points and water points, and then the trailer and to test how robust it is. It again, you know, I didn't have much of a budget for this, and the trailer was built in a family friend's back garden here in the UK. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah, we tested this out in in Scotland. I think day number two, the the trailer broke. And I was just stuck there. You know, it's fine because it's Scotland, so it's not as as extreme. So, you know, they were able to pick me up and we were able to come back to Wales and figure out what went wrong. You must have been thinking when you failed that little bit in Scotland, you must have been thinking, oh, Mongolia, that's a, that's a long way off here. I've got a few doubts now. I was shitting myself. <laughs> I was genuinely, I had a lot of fear for this expedition i'd never done anything like this before all of the previous stuff had been with a friend and you know cycling there's a road where there's a road there's people there's food there's water yeah so you don't really need to worry with cycling but with hiking and with hiking in such an extreme and remote country alone with a trailer that if it breaks that's like my life capsule that's my life supply but you know to put it into perspective it take me three weeks to walk across the altai mountains five weeks to walk across the Gobi Desert, completely solo and unsupported, and then a further three weeks to walk through the Mongolian steppe. Now, I couldn't even afford insurance whereby a helicopter would pick me up. My insurance was invalid. The only backup that I had was the hope that my logistics manager, who's in the capital city of Ulaanbaatar, can find me. It might take him four days and then get me to the water source or get me to shelter, which might take another two days. So six days you're looking at, whereas if you stand on the back end of a snake, six days, you, you, you're dead. It's, it's just not realistic. So there were all of these worries and concerns and, you know, the sand blizzards, the snowstorms, the grey walls, the stagnant water, the steep ravines, the trailer break and the drunken nomadic drifters, the list goes on and on. And I was bricking it. And I spoke to the previous guy who had attempted it, really nice guy. He told me to certain dangers to look out for. And I never forget at the end of the email, he said, remember, incredible is the ability to continue no matter what. And I never understood what that meant. And I remember training for Mongolia, you know, 22, 23, getting ready. And this quote just terrified me. I was like, what does he mean? You know, no one's incredible. Incredible is this impossible thing that no one ever is. You know, what does he mean by incredible? Is he trying to say that it's an impossible task? Is he trying to give me motivation here? Yeah, I, I just didn't, I didn't, I just didn't understand the sentence. So there were a lot of fears with with the Mongolia, I'm not going to lie and sit here, pretend to be all brave and courageous. I was I was scared. And when I came back from Scotland after the trailer broke, I started to heavily doubt myself, you know, because it had been two days in Scotland. Yeah, I had anticipated, what, 100 days that I thought it would take me to cross Mongolia. And the trailer broke on day two in Scotland. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> Surely someone's telling you this is a bad idea. Everyone was telling me that's a bad idea. Everyone. Yeah, so, okay. So, in your head, you've got doubts and everyone's telling you it's a bad idea. You know for a fact that this could kill you. You know that an army guy with more experience than you in these environments has failed at just over the halfway point. At what point are you saying this is a good idea? I guess throughout all of that, there was a certain percentage of hope you know, and enthusiasm towards it. And I kind of, you know, in order for this to become a career back then when I was 23, I was kind of saying, you know, risk, risk, nothing, gain nothing. But I'm a big believer that just because no one's found a way to do something doesn't mean it can't be done. 
And so I decided to ignore the fact that it hadn't been done before or ignore the fact that it had been attempted and failed and instead try to study and research why it went wrong and how I can possibly avoid making that same mistake. And I remember people in Mongolia as well telling me it was impossible. I mean, I think you've got the world's toughest horse race, which is a thousand kilometers across the steppe. And I met up with one of the guys, I think it was one of the winners of that horse race in London. And he told me, you know, the horses struggle, man. You and your trailer, he pretty much said it's a ridiculous idea. And this started to really get to me so much that I remember with yeah. my logistics manager, Rob, I went to the Royal Geographic Society and I said, look, let's get these maps. Everyone's saying it's impossible. Let's find that impossible day. And so actually what I did, what helped me with, like, with my mindset of wanting to pursue this Mongolia trip is I actually looked at every single day literally day by day by day and I actively try to search for the impossible day that everyone keeps talking about and when I did that I realized that every day was possible like as long as I have food as long as the trailer doesn't break and as long as I make the water points those are the three most vital things for the expedition failing and so I realized that other than that it is doable it's possible all of the days are possible. So as long as I keep getting up and I keep walking and the trail is still intact and I look after it and I take my time and rush in the water, rush in the food, I can do this. And I think whilst everyone was saying it's reckless or it's ridiculous or, you know, don't do it, it's impossible. There was always that deep knowing inside me that I've done my study, I've, I've done my meticulous planning. I can't find any evidence to suggest that there's an impossible day of the 100 days. There's challenges, there's major hurdles, but not one of those is impossible. There was one day, and we're going to get to it shortly, which almost did become impossible. Uh, we'll get to that shortly, but I just want to talk about, you're talking about locals. They helped you out along the way, didn't they? Yeah, the locals were incredible. Oh, I loved the locals. And it was the locals that actually possibly inspired Madagascar as my next journey as well, just because... You know, I went over eight days, I think, at one point without seeing any locals, uh, without seeing any human, you know. And then I remember thinking when I did come across the locals, they were so friendly that on my next expedition, I want to do it in a place where I'm constantly coming across the locals, you know, mm. they were just amazing. Um, but yeah, the locals in Mongolia, very hospitable. One of them even offered up a family member, didn't he? Yeah, yeah. Tell me that story. Yeah, so I was just sitting with a Kazakh family in the Altai Mountains. They invited me in for a, for a quick rest, um, drinking some Kazakh chai. I was there for about 40 minutes or so. And I was thinking, right, you know, this is a long break. Now I've got to crack on and make up for this, uh, you know, make more mileage. As I looked towards the guy to let him know that I'm going to shoot off, I just saw him like looking weirdly at me and then looking to his wife or his girlfriend and then looking back at me, back to his wife. And I was all confused thinking, what's going on here? And then right there and then, you know, in hand gestures, he just pointed at me, at his wife pointed at his bed and joined the hands together. And I was just like looking at his wife, looking at him. She was looking at me, looking at her husband. And we were all just kind of exchanging awkward looks. Uh, and then I put on a fake laugh. They didn't laugh. But then a couple of seconds later, they laughed. And I was like, right, I've got to go. And I made a swift exit. And she continued breastfeeding her child. And oh, my God, I was kind of like, it took me a few minutes, I think, for it to sink in whether that was actually a legitimate wife offering right there and then, or whether they're laughing at me now because <laughs> they pranked me or something. 
Who knows? I don't know. No one will ever know if the second half of your story is true as well. Like no one will ever know because I'm sure they. Yeah. Don't, I'm sure they're not listening to this interview. No one would have even known if there was a different ending to that story. Uh, <laughs> yeah, no one would know. You're right. It must have crossed your mind. No one will know. Oh, no one will know. Yeah, it was. It was lonely in the outer minds, but uh, I bet. No, I, I. I kept walking. I promise. Didn't you end up in a nightclub one night? Yeah, yeah, I did. I went to. Uh, I forgot what the name of the city is, but I randomly, I rocked up into a city. This is towards the end of the expedition. I met up with a local Mongolian who said, let me take you out for a beer. He had seen what I had done on the Mongolian local news, took me out for a, a beer. And the next minute I was there with this wacky sort of long beard, hair estate, really skinny stinking yeah wearing these ridiculous trousers and, and t-shirt and crocs <laughs> and i'm it next minute i'm in this nightclub that he's pulled me to pretty drunk because i was pretty dehydrated and he was giving me a lot of beer and <laughs> yeah we're just buying in this nightclub with crocs <laughs> oh what a story what a part of the expedition eh? like just yeah exactly exactly that's what it's about, isn't it? It's you no know, sometimes it's great to be disciplined and dogged and staying on on the mission, but you know it's those experiences that stand out as big highlights as well that you can sometimes forget about. You know, for, you can forget to enjoy the moment sometimes, can't you? And you got to remember also why you're doing it. You're not just doing it for the world record, like as you said at the start of the interview, you're doing it to see different cultures off the beaten track and that kind of thing. You mentioned navigation and how you were just using a map. How difficult was it to navigate? through a country that you'd never seen before, you'd never seen the terrain. Sometimes there were roads, sometimes there weren't. I mean, did you get lost? How difficult was it? Yeah, it was hit and miss, to be honest. A lot of the time, it was very easy, you know, map and compass. We've got all of the feature points. Uh, we're able to, to look around and, and I'm able to locate and see where I am and calculate the distance by the map to the next community or water source. But then there were times where it was just vast, empty land where, of course, the map doesn't show anything. It's just yellow, you know? But when I'm here, actually, in the Gobi Desert, you've got a path that then splits off to five different paths, and you're kind of like, oh. And the paths are important. The paths lead to the next water source. It's like your lifeline to the next water supply. So if you mess up and take the wrong path, you know, that could cost you a lot more time. Mm. The time isn't on your side because you're now rationing and, and dipping lower and lower into your water source. And so I remember that, that that always used to get me very frustrated and very worried and anxious as to making sure. And sometimes it was a case of, right, my compass is saying, you know, it's this way. It must be this path. But the paths are just so close to each other, scattered away. Uh, and they are important because if you're not on the path, you're in the soft sand. And when you're in the soft sand, it's, it's nearly impossible to pull the trailer. And there were many times I had to pull it in soft sand. And so I'd always try my best to avoid that because that will just drain you with all your energy and that will drain through your water supply as well. You'll be drinking a lot more water. The bit where you're talking about impossible days, let's talk about one of those days because it was actually a, a part of the, the documentary. I, I actually found it really hard to watch because you could almost see and feel the pain that you're in because it was so hot. You were literally, mm. I think locals had given you some yogurt the, the day before, which you'd scoffed. So you, you had diarrhea, you were dehydrated. 
and it was so hot you were trying to find shade underneath your trailer because we're talking about the Gobi Desert. There is no shade whatsoever. And what, like 40 degrees Celsius? You almost died, didn't you? Yeah, I did. Yeah. It's funny because with that documentary, we did hide out. So um, there were some clips that I wasn't comfortable sharing that went a lot deeper and a lot darker. And so, yeah, I decided to, to actually keep those hidden. But yeah, you're right. You did see a stint in the desert. And it, it was pretty much after the Altai Mountains. It was, it was pretty cold in the Altai Mountains. So I, wasn't need, I didn't feel the need to drink as much water. So already I was kind of slowly dehydrating myself without realizing by the time I entered the Gobi Desert, there were a good few more weeks that went by that now I was getting more dehydrated because I was rationing the water source. And I remember coming across a sort of well that was dry. And so now I'd missed, it was an unconfirmed water source. It wasn't a confirmed water source. So there was always a chance that it's not going to have water in it. And that's fine. I just need to make sure that I've got enough to then get me to the next confirmed water source. But there lied the issue. Mm. It was hot and I was dehydrated and I no longer had enough to last me to the next water source. And, you know, as I pushed on, the days went by and I started slipping into a real bad state. I, I was just in agony. And then you, you're right. And then I came across a local community. I kind of knew that I'd had to push on because the girl was just so hot. It felt like I couldn't recover there. And so I, I drunk their water. You know, they fed me up. I had the, the yogurt. But then that almost made things worse for when I then pushed on. I was still days away. I was now suffering with diarrhea. Eventually that cleared up, but it did a good job of dehydrating me even more. And then before you know it, I was suffering with heat stroke, heat exhaustion, um, you know, usually fatal. I was delirious. I was hallucinating. It was just like a hazy blur of dizziness, if you like, where it kind of felt like I was dreaming and wasn't really there in the desert either didn't feel like I was present in the moment you know and I remember hiding under my trailer because that was the only place that I could get any sort of shade from the sun but sometimes when I'd hide under the trailer I'd be under there for a good hour at a time and you know I continued to do this time and time again and eventually it just hit me that sort of realization that if I don't keep getting out from under my trailer and pushing on I'm gonna die out here in the Gobi I'd missed the point of backup. You know, if I was to call him for my agent to pick me up, if he found me in time, he would get to me within three to four days and then take another two days to get me out. So you're talking about six days. At that point, I didn't believe I could survive six days. So that's when it came down to having only one option, which was to get up and, and keep walking to that next community that I needed to get to. And I, you know, I'm a big believer in visualization. It's good to... to to have your goals clear in sight. But I was in absolute agony. I could almost feel my organs drying up, you know? And so I couldn't visualize shit when I was feeling that bad. But what I did is I pretty much did what I did when I was planning the Mongolia trip, when I broke down the days and, you know, I, I focused on a hundred meters at a time. I could see a hundred meters in front of me. So there was no reason why I couldn't get up, push on a hundred meters and then rest under my trailer, but no more than five minutes. So it was actually that, goal setting and keeping routine that helped me to get out of the Gobi into the next community. I'd spent, I'd walk a hundred meters and then I'd rest for five minutes and then walk another hundred meters and then rest. And by doing this, I just about made it to the next community. And you saw in the documentary, it took a good seven to eight days to recover. My urine was pretty much black. There was periods where I wasn't sweating. And then when I was profusely sweating, 
I was just in a state, you know, I was just in a mess. And it took a while to, to get back to normal. And it took a while to build up that, that mindset as well. I didn't mm. want to go back out and face the sun. I remember when I would walk from the, from the room that they offered me and I'd run to the toilet, which is kind of like a hole in the ground in the distance, but just being in the sun as I'm running to or walking to that, to that toilet, I just remember like it gave me goosebumps or I would like shriek up and, oh, it was awful. It was awful. Jesus. In Madagascar, you, you, you had a, a close shave as well, didn't you? Didn't you catch malaria? Yeah, yes, I did. I suffered a beating, haven't I? Yeah, so Madagascar, that was a that was a 1,600-mile journey. It took me 155 days to complete. And the challenges there were, I don't, I, I genuinely, I've said this before, and I genuinely believe it. I don't think that out of those 155 days of hiking, I really don't think there was one day where it was just a pleasant hike. I don't think there was one day where I, it ended and I said, hey, that was a nice day. <laughs> like, of course, it was incredible. But I mean, there was always something. There was always a challenge. There was always an obstacle, whether that's being held up at gunpoint by the military, crossing crocodile infested rivers, the locals trying to fight me, catching the deadly strain of malaria, being bitten by leeches, spiders, trying to hack through the jungle, hunting, gathering, carrying a chicken called Gertrude. You know, there was just, there was always something. Uh, the cyclone season as well and you know it was just very demanding and yeah you're right uh, only one month into the five month expedition i contracted the deadly strain or the deadliest strain of malaria which is falciparum which usually kills you within 24 hours but you know i was taking my anti-malarial pills but then i eat i ate an eel which was off and rotten and then i was vomiting and suffering with diarrhea so i believe the anti-malarial pills that i were taking pretty much going in one way and coming out the other. Oh, straight through, yeah. Yeah, so I didn't have that full dose protecting me. And I think that's how malaria got a hold of me. But luckily, it wasn't 24 hours. It was five days that I survived for. I had to keep walking. Five days before you got any treatment or any help? Yeah, five days before when I realized I'm suffering with something to when I arrived at the hotel, not the doctor's. So I rocked up to a small community. And luckily, that community had overland transport. So I stayed there and, and, you know, tried to feel if I was getting better or worse. And then the next morning was awful. And so they shot me straight to the nearby city, took me to a hotel because I needed to quarantine because this malaria for mosquito bites me and someone else and they too have malaria. And then the doctor came in, uh, two doctors, and I just remember being on my bed. I sort of collapsed at that point. I remember two heads looking over me and they were sort of spinning and all blurry. And then they, you know, they managed, I managed to, to wake up a little bit more and they took my blood and minutes later they came back and told me that I'd got falciparum, which is the deadliest strain and that they needed to act now. And they did act now. They gave me certain pills. Uh, the doctor checked on me four times a day for the next week. And, you know, luckily I, I made a, a full recovery. It's a positive and negative because, yeah, the negative is I got the deadliest strain of malaria. But the positive is that out of the four strains of malaria that you can get, falciparum is the only strain that you can completely eradicate from out of your system whilst the other three strains they can remain dormant and so uh, i don't have malaria anymore it's fully out of my system but that's only if you catch it within 24 hours because you're usually dead within 24 hours of catching falciparum oh what what a lotto ticket <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's it's been hectic <laughs> oh my god 
Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So how long did that set you back? About five days, five, six days. Um, that was probably about a week and a half altogether by the time it took me to get back to that community to regain my tracker and my backpack and and then continue. And I remember that community that we arrived at, that then took me to the to the doctors, that was at the foot of a mountain, and that was at the foot of the second highest mountain called Peak Bobby in Madagascar. So I'd lost about 10 kilograms at least in a week because of the anti-malarial pills and just having malaria. Uh, and I still had four months left of the expedition, and now I had to carry a 25-kilogram backpack up the second highest peak. And so it was a, it was a hard lesson. It was yeah, it was tough. It dropped me right in the deep end, you know, as I like, here we go. Let's let's talk about the the Yangtze for a bit and then we'll come back to some of the stories that you touched on before about some of the crazy stuff that you've encountered along the way. So you're walking the, the Yangtze, Yangtze River. Is that, am I saying that right? The Yangtze River, Yangtze. It's the third largest river, longest river in the world, 4,000 miles. It took you 352 days. What's the attraction there? That sounds like a big old... Big old, long, boring journey, but I'm guessing it wasn't. Yeah, this was my most ambitious expedition to date. When I first set off for traveling, age 19, I went to China. That was the first place I went to. And me and my friend, we skirted the East Coast, Beijing, Shanghai. We went over to Hong Kong and then Southeast Asia. And when I look back at China, when I reached Cambodia, and I look back at the, the Asian map, and I saw how huge China was, and that we'd barely touched the surface, mm. you know, I was like... I would love to go back to China one day because, you know, everyone knows of China. But I think when people think of the country, they just have these big mega cities in mind. Yeah. There's so much wilderness to, to China. There's so much history. There's so much diversity in terms of wildlife, weather and terrain. Do you find it funny when someone is, um, you know, when they put on Instagram or, or Facebook or whatever, that they, they, they'll be like, China, done. Europe done, you know, travelers. Yeah. And it's like that, I guess, with Australia too, right? It's like, yeah, I did Australia, but they don't want to go to Sydney. <laughs> yeah. And it's massive. It's massive. Yeah. Yeah. I've been to Bondi, yeah, done Australia. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So I felt kind of like that. Yeah. So I was like, I need to go back one day. So there was that. And then I was on a uh, pretty good run. I had done Mongolia. That was a world first. I'd done Madagascar. That was the second world first. I was kind of like, you know, what do I want to do next? And I know that the Nile and the Amazon had been walked before. There were two Brits that ticked off the Nile and the Amazon. And the Yangtze is the third longest river in the world, the longest river to, to run through Asia. It's got one of the highest sources of any of the major rivers at over 5,100 meters, which is equivalent to Mount Everest Base Camp. That's where it starts. Is where it starts. Yeah. And so 
What does the source look like? Is it just something that's geographically, this is the source, or you see the water coming out of the ground? Or Yeah, so it's interesting. So you've got the traditional source of the Yangtze River. That is what is, has always been known as the source of the Yangtze. However, in 2009, the same team that discovered the traditional source had better access to satellite and worked with NASA to rediscover. And they actually found and corrected their old mistake and came across the true and scientific source of the Yangtze River, which was funny to me because I was always planning to walk from the traditional source. Plans were in place. And then, you know, we dig a lot deeper because this was the early stages. We dig a lot deeper than we realized that there's a true and scientific source. It's slightly longer. It's slightly harder to get to. But if I'm doing this, it has to be the true source. Mm. And so I had to change plans. You know, it, now the trip was going to be a little bit longer. And, you know, now we had to get extra permits because it's so sensitive. But if I'm doing it, it, it has to be the true and scientific. So the source is just a trickle that comes out of the ground. Literally, it's got a plaque right next to it, says the source. So I, I partnered up with um, the national park there and the rangers took me to the source and we're like, this is it. And I was like, wow, okay. so. Yeah, it's the surrounding, if you can imagine, it's just sort of like a big green hill and you roll over, everything else is kind of below you and you've got this big sort of plaque in the ground. We're uh, all in Mandarin stating that this is the, the true scientific source with the altitude and all of that. And it's this just this trickle that flows out from out of the ground. And it's so crazy because right here, you, know, you, you can step over it. It's a tiny trickle, but yet you think that whilst it's here, so small that you can step over it 4,000 miles following this little stream. It's going to be almost 10 miles wide with cruise liners, you know, and half a billion of the population of the Chinese live next to the Yangtze river and rely on it as a main water source. And here it is just like a little trickle. It was amazing. It was like, really like, it felt like old school exploration in a way, you know, it was like, whoa, this is because it had taken two years to prepare and to get the permits. I think we needed over 13 different st- signed and stamped documents, probably no more than a handful of Westerners that have ever been there before. You know, it's so legit, so official. You know, we were taken in by the by the police on five different times. It's very hard to get to. And so it was an honor to be there at the source, realizing I'm one of very few. And that it was only discovered in 2009 as well, you know, it was it was wild. Speaking of like old school exploration, like you must have come across some pretty diverse cultures that would have been. I wouldn't. Say, I don't know if you might correct me, but I'm not. Just, maybe untouched. They might have been untouched or un, you know, uncontacted or, you know, what was the diversity like along the way? Because not all Chinese people are the same culture, right? Yeah, that's right. In terms of uncontacted, I would say that was more with Madagascar. Um, Madagascar, I actually came across communities that weren't on the map that I got back to civilization and tried to tell people about, but they were oblivious. You know, even I was ambassador for the tourism of Madagascar and I was speaking to the minister and, and sort of geographical people of Madagascar and they were pretty flabbergasted. You know, they were like, no way, that's impossible. There can't be a community there. And we had also come across communities that it was their first time seeing a white person. And they actually ran and cleared their entire community and hid in the bush. Is this in Madagascar? This is in Madagascar. They disappear. And my guide that was with me 
uh, in terms of translation, he would shout out and you would hear his shout out, you know, back from the bush saying why they're not coming, why not they're not coming back to the community and that we must leave and that white people don't belong here. And then he would shout out, you know, is this your first time seeing a white person? And they were like, yeah, you've got to go now. You could you could have diseases and stuff that you, like, because they talk about that, right? Like the Amazon and stuff when white people arrive there or, you know, they just spread disease that we probably don't even know we've got, but because they're so uncontacted, they haven't got the immune system to cope. Potentially, yeah, potentially. But I think more of what it was is the French ruled Madagascar just over 60 years ago now. And they were pretty brutal, especially in the outbacks. And so they would torture, uh, not all the time, but a high majority of the time, they would torture the locals. And so the locals are left with these very dark stories. And so their grandparents or great-grandparents have passed on these stories. And so now for the younger generation or these new communities, they've only ever heard stories. So when they see a white person, they resort him with bad news. Yeah. And so they just won't come back out because of the stories of the past. And so you try to tell them that things have moved on and it's not like that anymore, but they don't know that because they've only ever been in that one community, you know? They don't know how the world has moved on uh, without them. It's very bizarre. Yeah, I I remember seeing a mum and a daughter sort of walking towards us on the path as we came around the corner and they just stopped. They just froze. They dropped all of their belongings, turned around and sprinted away from us. The Madagascan cultures are quite interesting because there was... Obviously, you have to respect the local culture. And yeah. part of that involved you carrying around a chicken, right? Yeah. In order to summit the highest mountain in Madagascar called Maramakotro, it's a tradition. It's cultural. You must carry yourself. It has to be white, you know, a white cockerel or chicken. Uh, and they say that it wards off the bad spirits and witches of the rainforest. You know, bad spirits and witches is something that the Madagascar people heavily, heavily believe in. Uh, you know, it's a, it's a very real thing for them. And you must carry this chicken up to the to the mountain and then you sacrifice it, set it free on top. Uh, and then you mix like a, a drink of honey and whiskey and then throw it over the rock on top of the mountain. And that allows you safe access back down the mountain. Now, the witches and ghosts are scared of white chickens. And so that's why you're protected. They don't come close to you if you're carrying a white chicken. And then you've got to leave the chicken on top because if you bring the chicken down off the mountain into a new community, then you've brought the bad spirits and witches with you. And so I respected this culture. I always respect every culture, no matter where I'm traveling. And so I agreed to this and I, I took a white chicken. I named it. I named him Gertrude, a female German name. And Gertrude became, you know, a solid team member. How long did you have Gertrude for? Two and a half weeks, mate. How did you transport Gertrude around? In my backpack. I've got this little sort of zip compartment above me. And a lot of the time he would be happy walking. He became domesticated. So he's almost like a little dog. He would follow us. But a lot of the time, yeah, he would get tired. And we would put him up in the backpack and just his head would be sticking out. He would tuck himself in if it was raining and keep quiet. So I was always praying for a bit of rain. But if it was sunny, he would poke his head out and be chirping right next to my ear for two and a half weeks which was so annoying. I had the machete in my hand, you know, I was, I was tempted many a times. But no, we had, you know, two and a half weeks. We set him free on top. He did make it. We had to look after him. We had to feed him, give him water. And I was hoping he would follow us back down, back down the mountain, but he didn't, you know, he stayed up there. It was rain and it was cyclone season. Unfortunately, I don't think he would have lasted more than one or two nights. He knew the rules. He knew that he knew what he signed up for. Mm. Yeah. So we left him on top. Did Gertrude keep the 
witches away? I didn't see no witches or bad spirits, and the locals were happy at the next community that we didn't bring in. Otherwise, I'm sure they would have chased us off, bringing the bad spirits to their community. But, you know, yeah. Didn't you guys have a run-in with a witch in the jungle? (laughs) Yeah, I was actually, I was curious as to whether you heard of that story before or not. Where did you hear hear of that? I don't know where, I, I, I came across it somewhere in my research. I don't know if it was on the Rogan podcast or in a documentary but definitely i definitely saw it somewhere yeah 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 i've not mentioned this too much actually but you're right i have said it on podcast i don't know if i said it on the joe Rogan one or not but yeah there was something very weird that happened Uh, i'll let you try to decipher and and make up your own mind as to as to what it might be but you know one one night we came across this community again it wasn't on no gps it wasn't on the map if you can picture the north of madagascar it was just thick dense forest sort of mountainous jungle area if you like and so we come across this community that wasn't supposed to be there uh it was only small maybe six six to eight huts but they were living there you know that was their base and they invited us there and they spoke a bit of a weird dialect like my guide couldn't fully communicate with them it was a different dialect but they said that we can stay there no problem it was a big full moon it was quite an eerie community it was a very eerie community. It was now me, my guide, a photographer that joined me and her porter. So there was the four of us and we stayed in this wooden hut. And here's my take is I woke up about, must have been, I don't know, one, two o'clock in the morning to Max, my guide, walking into the hut. I just saw his silhouette. The moon was behind him walking into this sort of, the door was kind of like wooden plank. So it had gaps in it. So I could see this figure on the outside. Then he walks in with his machete and I'm like are you okay mate and he was like out of breath he was like yeah yeah I'm fine go back to sleep I'll tell you in the morning so I thought nothing of it I was super tired anyway I dropped back off to sleep and he went to sleep as well the next morning he told me that he woke up in the middle of the night about one o'clock he turned to his right and saw me Suzanne and Lever, the photographer and porter convulsing in our sleep almost shaking in our sleep um, and it's weird because I remember I did have a, a bad dream. I had a disturbing sleep that night. And that's initially what made me wake up. But it was just in time for him coming into the hut. And I spoke to Lever and Suzanne. And I was like, what the hell? Do you remember convulsing? I don't. And they were like, no, but I had a weird dream last night. And so all three of us had this weird dream. And Max take was that he woke up, saw us convulsing. He looked towards the door and there was someone stood on the other side of the door looking in and he in his mind he says he doesn't know what it was at first he shouted oi or whatever he said in, in malagasy and then stood up because she wasn't going and we were still convulsing he walked towards the door and she stepped back gave out this in a different dialect some like i don't know what it was she said something he opens the door runs after her and max is a, he's a fit guy he's a healthy guy he's a fast runner and he said he chased this person with a machete and she, he said it was a girl, she outran him. And then as soon as she got to the forest, she just disappeared, almost like, Poof. and then he comes back and he says, it was a witch that had you three under a spell and you three were convulsing. And I was like, what? And then he said, he came back to the hut, he opened the door and we had all stopped convulsing. And I woke up and asked if he's, if he's okay. And I was like, yeah, I remember waking up and asking you if you were okay and you were out of breath. He was like, that's why I literally chased off a witch back into the forest. And then I was like, well, why wasn't, why weren't you convulsing? You know, why were you aware? Mm. 
And he said, because Gertrude was sleeping next to him. Gertrude was actually sleeping right next to him, right there. And of course, I was laughing at this and thinking, no, come on, that's hilarious. But then that morning, we're having tea with all of the rest of the locals. And they are all sharing with Max and Lever, the two Malagasy, the guard and the porter, these stories and these run-ins with witches around this area of the forest. And so me and Suzanne are like looking at each other, feeling that we're the only normal ones. But then all of a sudden, the whole community is looking at us like we're the weird ones for not believing. And so I kind of like went with it. And I was like, you know, I didn't say I believe. I didn't say I disbelieve. I was just open minded to it. Like, heck, who knows? Uh, And they were just all sharing and having translated back to us these stories of of encounters with witches. And it was so freaky. Suzanne was terrified. I don't think she she didn't sleep alone at night again in terms of after that hut, we had our own individual tents. She didn't stay in her own tent for the next week and a half to two. She was really terrified. That would scare the absolute shit right through me. Like that. <laughs> That's a weird one, right? That's And we were in the middle of nowhere. This community wasn't even on the map. I was speechless. I didn't really know what to... You were stalked by witches. Jesus. <laughs> hey, there's a good one for you. Wow. Stalked by witches. <laughs> oh, my days. You were stalked by wolves at one point, weren't you? Yeah, that was in China. Yeah, we were we were followed by a pack of wolves for a good couple of days. We were warned against it, but we didn't really know. It was me and my uh, my videographer, Kyle, because, of course, we were filming for Nat Geo. And we were about to head down a valley, and we came across this group of Tibetan guys, and we just wanted to check the way. And Kyle was fluent in Mandarin, but these guys only spoke Tibetan, you know, completely different language. So we didn't know what they were saying, but they seemed concerned. They seemed pretty stressed, and they were trying to warn us of something, but... And no, we weren't too sure. We just, you know, thank you and waved goodbye and, and we carried on walking. But Kyle had filmed all of that. He had filmed the guys trying to tell us something, which was cool. And anyway, we walked on. And for the next couple of days, we heard a pack of wolves howling, uh, which was amazing. You know, it was kind of awe-inspiring, but creepy at the same time, especially at night. And we kind of gathered that these wolves weren't really making any distance. You know, they weren't getting further away and they weren't getting closer. It was like they were staying a certain proximity Mm. away from us. Like they were following us and watching signs of weakness. After a couple of days, they had eventually disappeared and all was fine. But however, fast forward like four to six months and my team, my production team in Beijing got a hold of that footage. And I remember they called me up and said, you know, I'm flashing it back to when you were in, in Tibet and when you were talking to those locals who were, who were warning you. And I remembered that. And she said that they, because she speaks Tibetan, they were warning us. They said that only yesterday, exactly in that valley that you're heading, a local was killed by a pack of wolves. Don't go down there. <laughs> and we had, that's actually in the National Geographic documentary, that scene as well. And we had absolutely no idea. Hence why we were saying, yeah, no, thank you, bye-bye, and we carried on walking. But yeah, they were saying only yesterday, you know, someone was killed by a pack of wolves. Don't go down there. Whether it was the same pack of wolves following us or not, we don't know, but it kind of matches up. Mm. Um, But there were two of us. And, uh, you know, maybe I heard that wolves tried to stalk and tried to see signs of weakness, tried to see if you're limping and whatnot. So they probably saw that, you know, we were pretty big with the rucksacks on and not weak at all and, probably just disappeared because it's a bit risky for wolves to attack a person. It's very rare, but yeah. it happens. What about bears? Bears are a different story. Now, they they scared me beyond belief. I kind of went out to China with this healthy mindset, with this Western mindset of like, leave the bears alone and they'll leave me alone. Yeah. And I believed that until the locals just, the locals know best, right? Mm. You know, if you see the locals panicking, you should definitely be panicking. 
and they were telling me otherwise. And not only were they sharing horrific stories, they had photos and videos to back up what they were saying. And for some reason, they loved getting my WeChat, which is kind of like the Chinese social app, like a WhatsApp. And they loved sending me these images and, uh, and videos in which I would always reply, you know, stop it. Stop sending me these. Uh, yeah, I'm already scared. I don't, I don't need to see this. But they were saying that, you know, you're here at the wrong time. It's fallen into torpor, which is kind of like um, hibernation for the bears. They're coming off the mountains because it's too cold and they're actively searching for food and calories before they go into torpor. And I kind of thought, don't eat near your tent, make noise so you keep them at bay. You know, I've got an air horn with me and a whistle, no weaponry. I have no weaponry. But then the locals kind of laughed at that and they would share stories like this one particularly stands out. You've got Tibetan mastiffs out there and they're these big dogs that protect the livestock and the nomads from the bears, from the snow leopards and from the wolves. But he was telling me that he lives, he lives in this hut, if you like, and it's got a steel door and it's got a bit of a courtyard, but he's out in the wilderness. He, like He's quite mm. privileged to have that. Usually it's like a white felt tent, like a guru or a yurt. And he said a bear walked straight past his chained up Tibetan mastiff into his courtyard in which he just clocked onto it, locked the door, and hid inside one of the cupboards inside the room. And this bear was scratching at the steel door, trying to get in for about 30 minutes, was unfazed. There I am in a tent, fabric, and this bear's trying to get past the steel door. And then he was showing me videos on CCTV, which is like the news channel, the China Chinese channel over there, like a news channel of a bear looking out of the window from a hut with blood on its mouth. It just mauled a family to death. And so with all of these images and videos, they really sat on my mind, you know, and yeah. I was really scared. I was hyper alert, very aware. The locals were giving me these knives. I'm not doing shit to a bear. When they're hungry, it's like they've, they've got one purpose and it's to, yeah. it's to eat. Yeah. But at least, I mean, you can pull out your whistle out of your handbag. And... <laughs> yeah, <laughs> with my wisdom. Yeah. And you know how I... It's a funny story again, how I was told that the air horn won't work is it was a guy in a hut, this girl, and on the other side of the stream, there's another girl where his old best friend used to live. And one evening, his old best friend came back on a motorbike. He had a motorbike and he came back to two or three bears, I think it was, maybe a mum and two cubs inside his hut, searching the cupboards for food. And so he started revving the engine and beeping his horn, thinking it would scare him off. But it didn't. The mum, the mum bear came at him and ran after him on his bike and he just about got away. Uh, but he never returned to that hut again. And so that's when I realised that, yeah, an air horn, it wouldn't really do much. We did take firecrackers and that did keep away the, the wild yak. The wild yak were another issue, especially in mating season. They are big and they will chase off a bear. A bear will run from the wild yak. Really? Yeah, I always kind of thought it was when I had my two guys for the first three weeks they were just terrified of the yak and i was like they're cows they're the cattle what are you, you know what are you scared of but then you know i was i was corrected and they are very big they were very aggressive and they always tried getting close to the horse castor choy because uh, in mating season it will just rip up it, like it's been, they've been known to just kill horses they just kill things man they're aggressive and so one morning at two o'clock in the morning i didn't even realize it was just my two guys that got out the tent because they had heard the yak or probably heard the horse getting distressed, looked at, saw two yak in the distant, wild male yak, massive they are. And they set up the Chinese firecrackers to scare the yak away. 
which terrified me as well because I just woke up to Chinese firecrackers outside my tent and I I had no like I had no idea that they were about to do that. When you're dealing with the locals with when it comes to wildlife, there came a point where you I think it was the Yangtze you had to cross or you had to cross a river, right? And they gave you some advice or they basically gave you a pass in relation to like crocodiles. Can you talk me through that situation? Yes, yeah, in Madagascar this was whereby there's three ways to cross a river usually that if you're unsure that there's crocodiles in there because the crocs aren't in every river but there are a lot of crocs there and we tend to be Nile crocodiles <clears throat> that came over from mainland Africa when, when it was all connected. You either cross where there's locals because the locals cross it every day. They know if there's crocs or not. Mm. But if there's no locals, you cross where there's white water or fast flowing river because the crocs don't usually like having the territory of fast flowing rivers. Or you cross by building building a raft, which we had done uh, a number of times bang on the river throw rocks in hit it with a stick try to intimidate the crocs and then once you build in the raft you can then try to get across it and hope that they don't knock the raft or come up after you now with some communities that we came across or some locals we would ask if it was safe to cross this particular river uh, we would kind of first ask if there's crocs and they said yes and we're like okay so is there a bridge and they were like no so do we need to build a raft and they were like no you can you can go ahead and cross the river. And we're like, but there's crocs. And they're like, yeah. And so we were like, okay, so how can we how can we cross it? And they're like, well, the see, you see, the thing is, we've made a deal with the crocodiles in whereby they won't attack us if we don't attack them. So if we let them be in our area, they'll allow us to cross without attacking us. Seems reasonable. Yeah, I'm like, right, okay. They're talking about it like it's some contractual agreement, you know, and I want to see this contract. <laughs> And I, I just I just didn't feel comfortable crossing a river because the locals say that they've they've got this deal with one another whereby they're gonna leave each other alone. I was like, yeah, no, no. My guides like heavily believed that they were like, Yeah, we can cross it. And I'm like, what do you mean we can cross it, guys? There's crocs in it. It's like, yeah, but they've they've done a deal with the croc. The croc's <laughs> not gonna attack. And I'm like, another no, no, we need to find a different way. I like I got what they were trying to say. Uh, and maybe they just worded it wrong, but it's the way that they do have this this faith of live and let live. And, you know, we've not done anything to them, so there's no need for them to do anything to us. And it doesn't work like that, does it? And so I was just a bit hesitant, just walking across the river in the hope that the crocodile sticks to its agreement. <laughs> <laughs> What'd you do? You built a raft, didn't you? I think one of the locals crossed first. <laughs> I think the local just was like, look, just follow me. And like, that was it. Oh, my days. Yeah. So we did cross. We did walk through the river and just hope that. Well, contracts and whatnot. Yeah. Yeah. Well, at least, uh, yeah, at least they stuck to the contract. Good on them. Good on them. That, oh, honestly, it's like so many, so many things you would have seen on like, like we're just scratching the surface really here. But um, some of these stories are amazing. And, you, and someone listening to this is, will be getting blown away as you speak and tell these stories like so nonchalantly like they're, like they're just something that you've been through. But there's a lot of causes that surface from things that you see and the impact of you know, climate change and things on local communities. And doing these yeah. expeditions allows you not only to build your own profile, but to use that profile to help bring or shed light on things that people maybe don't know about. So yeah. I guess like, I want to kind of finish off the interview by giving you a chance to just tell people about like what it is, how they can get involved in, in what you do. Yeah, no, appreciate that. Yeah, so since the beginning, since Mongolia, really, 
So with Mongolia, with all of the expeditions, I never really like it to be about one man and his endeavor, one man and his mission. You know, I always try to look at the bigger picture. So with Mongolia, I was actually raising funds for the Red Cross, but I was also raising awareness on climate change and the effects that that has on the nomads and the nomadic way of living. Not many people know this with Mongolia, but, you know, the winters are so much colder now that the livestock that supply these nomads with this way of life, the livestock are dying out because they can't handle the winters. And so the locals now are being forced to give up their way of life and move to the capital city, Ulaanbaatar. And with this happening every year, with so many more nomads moving out from the wild and into the city, they can't afford the city prices and they travel with their gur, with their white tent. And so there's now a gur district that surrounds the capital, Ulaanbaatar. And this is a this is a cold city. You know, this is one of the coldest capitals in the world, if not the coldest capital. It drops to minus 30 to minus 40 degrees Celsius. And they're in a tent. You know, they find whatever they can to burn to keep themselves warm so that they can survive the winter. And this includes dirty coal because all the clean coal gets transported to, to China, even plastics, you name it. And so in the winter, there's a lot of people that escape the city because there's this smog that covers the city city, and it's, it's difficult to survive, difficult to breathe. Uh, and just for an example, newborns survive in no more than three, four days before they die of suffocation. And the doctor is just advising newborns and their parents to evacuate the city. The smog is that thick from the stuff they're burning that it's killing newborns. It's killing newborns. Yeah, they can't, their lungs haven't adapted. They they can't breathe this stuff in. Jesus. And that's how bad, that's how bad it is. Yeah, it doesn't get the limelight. Not many people do talk about it. And so I wanted to to make it part of the mission to to shout more and to raise funds. And what we did with raising funds were with the Red Cross is they would actually supply shelter, like insulate sh- shelter for, for the uh, livestock so that the livestock can survive the harsh winter but it you know it's difficult it is difficult for them how do you say someone's gonna try and donate money or something like that what what does that money go towards apart from the keeping the livestock like what's the goal they get to they get to choose there's loads of organizations and environmentalists out in mongolia on the ground you know you only have to type in sort of air pollution or charities in mongolia and you'll see all the work that they're doing so there's plenty of ways Mm. to go about it um for sure and so that was for Mongolia, but with Mongolia, that was a quite a success on that side. And so with Madagascar, I wanted to do something similar. But for this one, I was raising awareness about the Lima Network Conservation. And this is a, an organization that has 60 organizations on the ground in Madagascar helping to protect and preserve all the unique biodiversity of the island. Because Madagascar is crazy, eh? Like it's got a whole lot of stuff that's nowhere else in the world. Over 80% of all plant life and wildlife found on the island is found nowhere else in the world. It's one of the most, if not the most unique country on the planet. Like I was coming across species like plant life and wildlife that I will never see again off this island. It was it was insane. Can you just go to Madagascar and like on a holiday and, and, and check that out? Is that like a thing? Or do you have to be an explorer and be going, oh, I'm going to be living in a, out of my backpack? No, yeah, you can. It's set up in some parts. It was, when was it that I was there? It was 2016 that I was there. And I'm sure it's developed even more since. But Madagascar is hit hard. It's, it's the poorest country in the world that has never been to war. Down south, it's very difficult. A lot of people struggling to survive. 
sort of wells on beaches that is slightly filtered salt water that these people are drinking further up north is more wealthy and that's where you've also got your islands and so people that go there they normally stay on the coast or normally go to the islands where there, there is actual resorts uh, and you can have a bit of a holiday and so that's what i think features more on people's minds when they think of madagascar it's not the true madagascar like the mainland mm. and the interior it's normally like the resorts and the beach places right. and, but there's there's places you can go absolutely and you have got the seychelles and mauritius all of these places not too far from madagascar but if you're looking for a hardcore sort of old school adventure madagascar delivers and i think you know on completion with the expedition and with the lima network conservation we've reached over 350 million people worldwide so then i was invited back to madagascar and the minister announced me as uk ambassador for madagascar tourism which was amazing. Awesome. So I was able to do more stuff and, and help and promote and shout about, you know, the beauty and the diversity of the island. Um, and then that brings us to China in which I worked with the WWF. You know, we were just shouting about air pollution, water pollution, and just actually talking more on all the good stuff being done by the real unsung heroes that aren't getting the promotions, aren't really heard of, you know, and they're often volunteering their time to help clean up the waterways or you know, help with pollution to help plant trees or help get up more wind farms or solar panels and and so uh, it was just a, a bit of a discovery along the Yangtze about that side as well not just about the challenges and the wildlife and the difficulties you know but about the traditions the culture and the environmental side and if people are wanting to find out more information is it on your website yeah it's on my website it's the there's the youtube as well more clips on the youtube if they're interested to see more there is like wwf and my integrated clips together yeah so it's all it's all there and your instagram it's a hell of a, a hell of a watch as well there's so much cool stuff on there of, of, of your travels and things like that what's your what's your instagram handle it's ash underscore dykes yeah just ash dykes and i find it ash thank you so much for coming on the show mate it's been awesome appreciate that andy it's been great and what was it mission possible your book the book Mission Possible, if people are interested, which covers all how it began, all of the early travels, Mongolia and Madagascar. Uh, you're an inspiration. And thank you very much for listening. And uh, thank you for your recommendations as well. Ash was another recommendation. So I tried to go through all my messages and try and work out who put Ash forward as a, as a recommendation, but I couldn't I couldn't remember who it was. I can't remember who it was, but thanks to whoever it was for, for doing that because it's been a hell of a yarn. <laughs> yeah, man, loved it. Cheers. We'll be back again next week. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.